Hello, wonderful beings. Welcome back to the TFC Audio Project. On this episode of Nerd Talk, my guest is Mitch Harbaugh, who's a foot nerd from the Tampa region. Mitch is a content creator for Beam Tribe. He leads the mind pillar for the foot nerd program. And, you know, he's just a great guy to speak with. And I really enjoyed the conversation. We discussed the foot nerd program, his interest in the mind, the world of distraction that we live in, and the process of exploring inner space. Really enjoyed the conversation. Hope you enjoy the content and find it applicable in your own life. This episode of the show is brought to you by our new and officially our first footwear product released at TFC called the FC 0.5. Our aim was pretty simple. Create a piece of footwear designed for movement, shaped like the human foot, and price it at 50 bucks Canadian. The shoe is officially released on October 2nd, and if you want to grab a pair, you can visit disruptfootwear.com and check out um, the website for details about those. This episode of the show is also brought to you by the Roasters Pack. If you're into coffee, this great Canadian company offers a service that gets you fresh beans to your door each month and gives you the story behind each of the craft roasters that the beans come from. If you check out theroasterspack.com, use the code FOOT at checkout, you'll get 7 bucks off your first month. Last but not least, this episode is brought to you by our travel partner, Nanook Protective Hard Cases. They make awesome protective cases in Canada that can keep your gear safe when you travel. And if you want to see what they offer, you can check out nanuk.com, nanuk.com, and you'll be able to check out their stuff. That's it for sponsors, so let's dig into this episode. Hope you enjoy. It's the TFC Audio Project. Hello, wonderful beings. Welcome to another episode of Nerd Talk. My guest today is Mitch Harbaugh. Uh, Mitch is a foot nerd from Tampa, Florida. He's the team leader for the Mind Pillar of the Foot Nerd Program. And uh, Mitch, thanks for taking the time this morning to chat, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. No worries, man. It's a pleasure. I always enjoy our conversations. So seeing as this is your first time on the audio project, why don't you start by uh, just telling the people a bit about yourself. So what gets you out of bed each morning, what you love to do, and maybe even a bit about what you're learning or digging into really deep uh, right now. Yeah, so currently the main stuff that I work on is I am a part-time CrossFit coach at a gym in here, or down here in Tampa called South Tampa CrossFit. And in addition to that, I work a lot on lifestyle coaching, essentially. That's kind of where I've been diving into a little bit more of like my specialty. And that kind of relates to a lot of different things. Like, you know, we were talking about having a morning routine and kind of how do I develop a better lifestyle. And so that's kind of the main realm that I've begun to dive in more and more into. Previously, a lot of my education and a lot of my passion to learn was only movement-based. So only in the past few years have I really started to expand into more of like a full holistic approach to trying to help people be healthy. And that started actually with getting into the foot nerd program, which I was in the February, 2020 class. Amazing. Cool. And yeah, I think the, I really like that moniker actually lifestyle coaching because I think health coach is like that term has been beaten to death and I don't think yeah. it's much in, in most people's realms anymore, but lifestyle coaching essentially is an all a really all encompassing term that reflects what I think the modern health professional needs to do. Right. Um, and you know, my personal definition of health professional is someone who makes their primary income working with people on their health. It doesn't have to do with any degree that you have or certification or whatever. It's just, you take your job seriously. It's your primary income generator um, in working with people on their health and you, you act like a pro, right? You have a constant, you have a learning practice, you practice what you preach. And, um, I think a lifestyle coach is a really, I think that's the most high impact, um, 
avenue to help to truly help people with their health on all the pillars. So uh, very cool. Thanks for that little intro. Um, yeah. So how did you do you remember how you initially came across TFC out of curiosity? I always like to, to find out how nerds are. Um, it's usually Instagram, but I'd love to see if you remember that time. Yeah, so I think it was maybe two years ago, a year and a half to two years ago, I had come across, I think, an advertisement from you guys on my Instagram channel. And that was actually because I started wearing uh, Vivo barefoot shoes. And I guess, you know, since my phone is always listening to me, it was like, oh, you <laughs> might like some other barefoot stuff. So uh, my Instagram feed and my story and my, and my ads that I was receiving really started to get populated with different like barefoot stuff. And I was like, oh, this like this book collective stuff looks really cool. And you guys had actually just released your online seminars, like the six hour video. And I was yep. like, okay, this looks pretty cool. I definitely want to be able to help people. And at that time I was coaching CrossFit full time. So I was like, okay, this is definitely going to be beneficial to make my hips better, make my feet better. I was trying to transition to fully training barefoot or in barefoot shoes. So I was like, okay, I got the online program, went through that. That was my first like touch of like seeing what the Foot Collective was about. And then I was like, oh man, they do an online education thing. I want to do this course. And so that's what eventually led me to joining on and, uh, and getting that. So yeah, about a year and a half, two years ago. So you guys, Instagram. Cool. Very cool. I'm just going to turn off our videos because then we can optimize the audio a bit because it does get a little bit uh, glitchy. Give me one sec here. Gotcha. Stop video. Okay. Um, powerful. Okay. Very cool. And then what attracted you, um, to the foot nerd program? Because it is, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a big commitment, right? Both financially and in terms of the energy, cause it, it, it goes pretty deep into a lot of areas and there's a lot of stuff to consume. So what got you interested or attracted to the program in the first place and, uh, sort of what value has the community given you so far from your perspective? So when it came to the program, I loved initially the six week course or not the six week course, the six hour video that I had seen from you guys. And I was like, man, if this is, I got so much help out of this and this was only six hours. I can't imagine going through a full course. So that's what really inspired me. Plus seeing the different types of content that was shared through the foot collectives uh, Instagram channel, because it wasn't just foot stuff, right? Like it started to expand into a lot of different things about food and sleep and mindfulness and, mindset. And I was like, I really am benefiting myself from this. So I want to be able to learn like what the foundations of this are. I love the idea of pillars of health. I was like, I've, it's crazy. Cause I went to school for health and exercise science. And I was like, I have never heard that before. And that <laughs> blows my mind, right? Like how can we talk about someone's health and not mention like fully encompassing things and only instead talk about the tiny details of some of them. So that's what let me kind of dive in there. And it was like a no brainer. I mean, regardless of what the cost was, I was like, I need to do this. This is going to pay back so much because I'm going to be able to learn how to help myself. And then I'll be able to learn then how to help others better as well. So once I was able to get into the program, then the community was amazing because I had other people that I was following on um, Instagram that I knew were also in the program. And it was kind of just like, regardless of the question that I had or the community I was with, everyone was really open to, talking about a topic. And even if they had different viewpoints, they were able to agree to disagree, have an open discussion. And that really helped me personally expand my knowledge on kind of like how I consider what is right, what is wrong, or different practices around stuff. Like I had never thought about a bunch of different stuff for like, Hey, what's the criteria for a better shoe or, 
you know, what's this proper sleeping routine and this is how you should think about food and the different recommendations from people. Uh, when I was in the TFC program and then even afterwards, like in our Slack group, I was like, man, this is just like a gold mine of education because I'm able to learn so much from other people that are just as passionate about health and well-being. Very cool. And yeah, I think the, I love the fact that it's a community that's not afraid to disagree because if mm -hmm. you just get a group of people that all agree on everything, it's like you're really not doing anything to grow your understanding or, or um, you know, make an effort to see different perspectives and, you know, you just end up creating an echo chamber. So I think the, the fact that we have everything from an emergency room uh, doctor to a guy that is a handyman that rides around on a unicycle and everything in between gives us a ton of different perspectives to sort of reconcile um, you know, and Slack is almost this blender where we put all our perspectives in the blender and we see what comes out the other side. And we do it through sort of respectful disagreement and wanting to see other people's perspectives. And I think that's something that is actually really hard to find these days because everyone seems so set on trying to, to tell people why they're right or why they're, or, or why your viewpoint is wrong. And we sort of miss out on the, the really generative nourishing conversations of like, okay, well, what information are you basing yours on? Here's the information I'm basing mine on. Let's figure out what matches up and what doesn't. And uh, I think it's really cool. And, and one thing you just said there, which I, I think is really powerful is you said, I wanted to improve my health so that I can help others. And I'm a firm believer that you can only take someone with their health as far as you've gone with yours. And so I really think that, you know, if I look at some of my friends who are physios, um, they're extremely well-intentioned. They work really hard. They're extremely smart but they don't actually take care of themselves. Um, they don't, they don't move well. They're often injured. Um, and you know, it, it always confuses me. It's like, well, if you aren't able to get your own movement on point, how are you going to be able to help others? And it always kind of confused me. So I love what you said there because it really is your learning journey is actually the learning journey of others as well, because you can then share your experience. So really like that. Um, so you are the mind pillar or a mind or mindfulness pillar um, leader for the foot collective uh, for the footner program rather. And, you know, I really, after having our first couple conversations, I was really amazed with how deeply you've gone and your, your depth of understanding of the mind and mindfulness and, and mental health. Um, and so, you know, what I'd love to hear, I'd love to talk a bit about your story, but like what got you interested in the path of inquiry into the mind, like the very first element that started to uh, stimulate your curiosity. So what got you interested? And also when was that? Like how long ago was that? So the, I guess the when would be maybe back in, I wanna say I first started reading mindfulness stuff in later high school, maybe early college. So around 2013, 2014. Oh, wow. okay. I, yeah, I had the opportunity to take a intro to skepticism class in, uh, in college. And I was just like, whoa, this is, uh, I haven't had any type of like questioning like this before. And we talked a lot about different religions, ideologies, and then also like how people think and, and understanding like logic and what is like a, a logician or however you would um, pronounce it. But that, that initial class was kind of like the catalyst to me wanting to learn more and more. And then I got into people like Sam Harris Jack Cornfield and, and people that we've talked about um, on some of our calls. And that's what started it all. And I was just like, okay, now I just want to learn as much as I, as I possibly can. So then I started getting into how our conversations and arguments had based on different types of like logical reasoning, 
what are certain like logical fallacies. And then from there that continued to develop into more of like a mindfulness sense where it goes, okay, mindfulness isn't, you know, just kind of closing your eyes, like getting some type of, Oh, I'm, you know, in a blissful state. That's what I'm going to manifest. So what ended up happening was I continued to dive in deeper. I got into mindfulness as far as meditation goes a lot more. And I want to say like 2016, 2017, And that's when I started to adopt like an actual, okay, I'm going to do a meditation and mindfulness practice, you know, sitting anywhere from like five to 20 minutes a day, making it like as easy as possible to start out. And I was just so fascinated with the brain, how it responded, what it's like to be conscious. What even is that? One of my favorite things is like when Sam Harris talks about like, how does matter give rise to consciousness? And I'm just like, man, that's a great question. Like, (laughs) yeah, damn, I want to know. So that just continued and continued. And I've gone through like different courses from like Jack Cornfield and, and Tara Brock, who are, who are great mindfulness practitioners. And um, I've most recently started to get into some more like traditional, like Buddhist teachings, but I like how it's still very secular in nature. And it's kind of just talking about your, Hey, this is your day-to-day experience and how to like interact with it and understand it. Wow. That's amazing. Dude, you are a you are way ahead of me in terms of this is making more sense now. Cause when I was talking to you, I'm like, how the hell has this guy learned so much in such a short period of time? But now knowing that the, sort of the, the, the journey started uh, much earlier, like even in 2013, like I literally meditation only came on my radar. Maybe, you know, it's, it's hard to remember the moment, but I think like, you know, the second it's weird. My brain thinks in quarters uh, for some reason. Yeah. But second quarter of 2019 was when it even came on my radar for the very first time. And like the last quarter, the last, uh, you know, 25% of 2019 was the first time I started meditating. And, you know, I was telling you before we went live, it's like, it's one of my biggest, uh, you know, if I had a a genie come out of a, um, you know, if I had a genie beside me, he said, you can go back in time and pick up any skill that, that you, that you wish you had picked up earlier hands down, it would have been uh, an understanding of meditation and mindfulness because it has been probably the biggest catalyst for growth, both in the physical realm and in learning and just being a better human with other people. Um, And I've only been going at it for like a year. So that's amazing. And I, I really love, you know, I'm a firm believer that your life is shaped by the questions you ask, the questions you ask about yourself, about your experience, about others. Um, and you almost, I, I always sense a gravitation towards people that seem to be innately curious, right? That ask, that aren't afraid to ask questions, but actually intrinsically enjoy asking questions. And like you, mm-hmm. you know, clinging to that question by Sam Harris or just wanting to inquire, um, that is a really potent path to growth because it's an intrinsic path. It's not something you're doing because you feel you have to. It's something you would like literally just want to do. And I, I, I love that. Um, and so what we're you know, uh, we'll talk about meditation after, but, um, you know, how has your sort of devotion to learning about med- uh, the mind and mindfulness sort of wavered? Has it been pretty consistent? Like if you have a pretty consistent learning journey since you first started or has it gone up and down? How's the journey been since, you know, 2013 all the way up until now? It's, it's, uh, it's definitely had its ups and downs and I think that that's okay. Um, Anyone that is getting into either learning about mindfulness or, or practicing mental training of some variety, there's going to be times where you can get more intense with it and then times where you're not going to be able to do it as much. So I 
over, I've always had the curiosity has sustained and I'm glad you brought up like that point of, of curiosity. Cause that's such a foundational point of mindfulness to be curious and, and not judgmental as you continue to learn. And so I have tried to do exactly that. The point of mindfulness would be like, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to be non-judgmental as I pay attention to my experience. So applying that to my education journey, sometimes I've had more time to study or do meditation practices. And then sometimes I've had less and I just have however been able to constantly try to put mindfulness into my daily life. It's something that I think takes time to develop and additionally takes time to develop to put into everyday life. So it's not just, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do my practice. And then after that, I'll be able to just, you know, go about my day. Well, it's like, no, you want to make it a lifestyle where you're living from a state of mindful awareness. And that also has been the most recent thing that I've tried to educate myself on more and more, that idea of kind of like open awareness being from there consistently throughout the day. But as I look back, for sure, there were times where I was, um, you know, doing a lot less and maybe a little bit hard on myself, but kind of like in that hindsight going like, okay, it's, it's all right that you have these ebb and flows, uh, whether that's you're more passionate, less passionate, wanting to learn something, kind of like veer off and want to do something else. I think as long as there's still a point of inquiry towards your experience, which can be put out in so many ways, whether that's the thoughts that you're having throughout the day, the way that you respond to someone's reaction or the impressions that you notice, or even just like, hey, I'm paying attention to how I move my body more. Like that idea of continually leading with curiosity, as long as that as a base can be cultivated continually, I think that the person and then myself in this case are like doing a good job of continually trying to be a better human. Right. Yeah. Cause that's really what it's about. That's what we're all trying to do. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, the investigation of uh, yourself and how you think and how, you know, you have to know yourself before you can even try to understand others, I think. And yeah. you know, we oftentimes, I think that's sometimes the barrier where we're not doing, you know, we're not going into inner space very frequently and figuring out, you know, how does my mind work? Because it takes two people to have a disagreement or to have a conversation. And if you're, you know, I think we all have a personal responsibility to sort of figure out, well, how have I been shaped by my lived experience and how is that affecting my relationships or my conversations or interactions? Um, and I, I'd love to know, like who, you mentioned Jack Cornfield and Tara Bratch and Sam Harris. Who was your first um, sort of person that you followed or that really, was there any significant person initially that really got you down a path of really wanting to understand things? Uh, it was for sure Sam Harris. It happened because I had started to go from a religious background to a non-religious background. And so the idea of the science behind mindfulness and the, like him being someone that's like a neuroscientist, as well as someone that's done month long, you know, meditation retreats, I was like, okay, I want to read more from this guy. And he was the first person that really anchored me and was like, okay, here's, here's how you're going to learn more about the human experience, mindfulness practice, what's going on in the brain. And in his book, Waking Up, it was just like, oh my gosh, wow, this all is like really eye-opening in the sense of when he's talking about things like, what does it mean to be mindful or what is the soul? Here's the illusory self. And as he goes into those different practices and even talks about things like psychedelics, I was just like, oh my God, this is, I've been missing this. This is something that's going to make a huge impact. I can't wait to learn more. 
Yeah, Sam Harris was the dude for me as well, and still is actually. I think the only reason I was able to to create a daily meditation practice uh, was the waking up app and going through. You know, you I think it's twenty eight days now, but it used to be like fifty mm-hmm. days, and doing that um, every single day, starting with like very short periods. I just found it was a beautiful on ramp to establishing an understanding, uh, sort of a template for for what meditation is and what meditation isn't. Um, and that's what sort of allowed me to create a daily habit, which was hard as shit initially. And I would love to you know, <laughs> share, share our experience. Um, you know, I always tell people I have a, a very strange brain. I, th- I call it a high entropy brain. So there's a whole lot of stuff going in there at all times, which is why it would have been the, my, my most highly selected for habit of just meditation and inquiry into the mind that I wish I would have started earlier because it would have saved me from a lot of suffering and it would have also just directed my energy in a much more efficient way. Um, and I, it's also affected my sleep in a, in an insane way. Like it's, it really is stunning how broad the effect can be from training your mind in terms of all of the areas of your life and how much it trickles into your entire daily existence. Um, and how much suffering it can leave as well. I think that's the single biggest thing. And, you know, I'd love to, um, well, I think your recommendation for the little book of being by Diana Winston has also just done a huge amount to expand my understanding of different, different, um, awareness states, right? Natural awareness, flexible awareness versus just, you know, I was always meditating with the mindset of, okay, fix my attention on a, on a narrow spectrum, uh, you know, like anchor with my breath and sort of process thoughts non-judgmentally, but really have sort of mm-hmm. like almost spotlight my attention instead of like floodlight where you're kind of seeing a broader array. So um, yeah, I just, there's so, there's so much to learn and so many amazing people like Sam's conversations on the waking up app. I don't use the oh, meditation anymore, but I, I use the, I listen to the conversations repeatedly and I'm just like, I'm so amazed by how much wisdom these people have and how, they can make the extremely complex, extremely simple and tangible. So yeah, Sam is a, is a beast. And uh, I'm very grateful for having come across, having, having come across the radar of waking up because it's, it's been very potent. Um, yeah. I'm really glad you uh, liked the book by Diana Winston. That was for sure something that I think is really beneficial because I think sometimes when people start mindfulness practices, they get stuck. They don't get consistent with it but also they're kind of like, am I doing this right? And in that book, and then in other conversations in the waking up app that Sam has with some people, you really get an idea that there is, there is a right way to do it, but there also is not really a wrong way to do mindfulness. And that book is a great way to, to go like, Hey, instead of doing what might be like a traditional Vipassana, which is like, okay, I'm closing my eyes. I'm focusing on my breath. I'm focusing on nothing else. I think it's really beneficial for people to learn. Like there are so many different ways that you can practice mindfulness. I would even consider people that do like different stoic practices, like a type of mindfulness and things like focused versus flexible versus, versus like a natural open awareness. Some people might be good at one, might be less at, at, at another, but the point is like you're being mindful. There's multiple ways to do it. One of my favorite ways is from uh, Douglas Harding, who was the guy who came up with the headless way mindfulness practices. Yep. And that I think makes a huge difference because it's something that's, you know, your eyes are open, which is usually different in this meditation and you're going through the exercise and it's just like, it's such a different way 
to do it because where one is close your eyes, sit down, breathe and focus on nothing else. The other one is notice your environment around you, look at the shapes, point at those shapes. And then you obviously end up, you know, pointing at your head to then realize like, Oh, there's not a head here. It's like my experience, but it's like such a cool way in that book to know that there are more than one way to be aware. Yeah. And that's, that's, it's really reinvigorated sort of uh, my, my desire to learn about the mind and meditation because it's, you know, the minute you get a different perspective, it gives you something to experiment with. If you're, if you're meditating every day, you have this uh, period of time that's allocated towards experimenting and, and discovering things. And when you have this, when you hear someone talk about it in a new way, you have a new template to experiment with. And I really, you know, you know in terms of Diana Winston's book, the reason I really, I read in a very weird way. People always ask me about it. I do not read tons of, uh, of I don't complete books. I read in a very fractal <laughs> way. So I, so I have 15 to 20 reading blocks per week that I get in. They're about 20 minutes. Sometimes it's 20 different books. Sometimes it's the same book, but I read in a very fractal way. And what I really like about uh, the little book of being is that it's broken up into a shitload of small chapters. So it fits really well with sort of my approach of spend less time reading and it's sort of, read in a very deeper way, engage deeply with what you're reading, but then allow time for processing instead of just trying to blow through a ton of material. Um, so thank you for that recommendation. I think that's probably going to be the mind book for the 2021 um, Footner program because it really is like she, she hits it from so many different angles, which I think is beautiful for people who are maybe just getting a first glance at the world of the mind and, and that sort of whole universe of, uh, of learning that, that of learning potential there. So, um, yeah, really like it. And, you know, Mingi, Mingi Rinpoche is one of my favorite. I think I've listened <laughs> to that conversation about four times and every time I laugh at yeah. some of his, like his humor is just so great. And his, and he, his simple analogies, um, like one of my favorite ones is if you're observing the river, you're not in the river. And it's a great oh, yeah. analogy for just like, if you can see the thoughts, um, and acknowledge them, then you're not stuck in them. And I think for mm -hmm. me that that has been such a big compass in my brain because it's, it, it just allows you to identify better when you are stuck in the river. Um, and allows you to almost, I almost visualize myself walking out of a river and sitting on the riverbank mm -hmm. and then observing things go by. And just, it's funny how the simplest metaphors can be the most powerful insights um, if you just sort of, you know, integrate them into your understanding. Yeah, I love when he talks about the, the monkey mind too. And he's like, buddy, buddy, yada, blah, And he's like, yeah, 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 blah, 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 blah. But I totally agree. He, the river um, analogy is, is so extremely powerful, I think, for a lot of people. And again, it's like you have all these different ways that you can kind of just like drop a thought and then kind of like see what happens and see what your response is. And so many of them might work for some people and might not work for others. But he goes through, I mean, so many in that uh, example with Sam Harris. Like I like when he is telling the audience that he's going to teach them how to do the best meditation. He's like, all right, there's two steps. And he's like, okay, go ahead and breathe and relax. He's like, just be. And then he's like, step two. Oh, there is no step two. You guys already did it. <laughs> so good. So. <laughs> and I think simplifying, you know, that was one of my biggest hurdles initially with meditation was always feeling that I was sucking at it. Um, and it wasn't until I really started to, um, you know, I read the book bliss more. And I think I, I read, 
um, or I listened to a couple of really potent conversations in the waking up app. And I realized like that, um, it was almost like I was fighting with it. Like I was wrestling with meditation instead of doing like judo where I was just flowing with it. And once I realized yeah. that every emotion, every thought that comes in is actually valid and should be, uh, looked at non non judgmentally instead of like getting angry with myself for all these thoughts flooding in and not being able to stop them. As soon as I hit that realization, meditation was a totally different experience and literally went from something that I endured because I thought it was good for me and I just had to do it to something I literally enjoyed because I was just, I was almost entertained in an almost funny way by all the crazy shit that was going through my brain. And I just like sort of let it go and like, mm -hmm. oh, wow, I'm thinking that. And instead of fighting it, it allowed me to sort of acknowledge what was going through my mind. And, and that was a big turning point for me. You know, did you, in terms of like, pra like a, a consistent practice, what were the first practices that you started to be able to adopt as like, uh, as, as a daily habit? As a daily habit, the waking up app, starting with that initial 50 day program was what I'd stuck with consistently. And then the idea of just, okay, I'm going to sit and meditate, whether it's with the app, without the app, using a different app, I'm going to do it for anywhere from five to 10 minutes, or if I can get up earlier, a 20 minute block. That's the main thing that I do as far as each morning. But Actually, the most recent thing I'd say for the past six to eight months that I've been trying to do instead as consistently as possible is this idea of short times, many times of mindfulness throughout the day. So it's just any moment during the day that you can have a, a brief experience of awareness and kind of like in the little book of being, it would be more of like an open awareness. It's like just rest in that and then try and do it just as many times as you can throughout the day even if they only last a second long. And what I've learned through doing that is these, we'll call it the central practice of in the morning sitting and meditating and having the eyes closed or, and going through whatever practice you want. That really helps deepen your practice. But in my opinion, I think what helps you expand and broaden and really get consistent and bring it into your daily life and kind of living from a state of, of awareness is that idea of the short times, many times, throughout the day. So that way I can be mindful as I get in my car or as I drive to work or as I'm coaching a class or as I'm talking with people or standing in line, like waiting to get like a coffee. It helps me be much more mindful throughout the day. And that's the main thing that and probably um, learning how to broaden circles of compassion, which I think is really important as uh, as well. And that kind of goes in the idea of you're doing mindfulness, not only for yourself, but you're also doing it for others so that you can be better for others. And I love how that plays on top of the kind of like foot collective foot nerd manifesto where it's like, Hey, I have to be healthy so that I can then help others. Same thing goes here. I have to be mindful, but I'm understanding that also I'm being mindful so I can help others. And I love how the, those like match up and doing those many moments, short times throughout the day is, has really helped me cultivate that more. That's great. I love that short times, many times. I heard that first from you. And I think, you know, the goal is to, for your practice to permeate your life, right? And I, I mm -hmm. think the, the beauty of uh, integrating that into your life many times literally just deepens the neural circuits and, and reinforces their connections of remembering, right? Remembering to be mindful, remembering to create a little bit of space to um, think of your experience instead of just being in it. 
Um, and I think that's extremely powerful because it, it really does uh, sort of extend the effectiveness of your practice. It's no longer just a condensed specific practice that you do as a one-time thing each day. It is literally, mm -hmm. that might be the place where you're training, um, like, like going to the gym, right? It's like, you don't want to just go to the gym and sit all day. You can go to the gym to work on specific skills um, and to do the hard work. But then the goal is to move throughout the day. The goal is to train mindfulness and experiment with different approaches, but then use what you learned in that training ground to then apply in your day-to-day -day life. And I think that's, that was another thing for me that initially I looked at it as a standalone isolated practice, which had benefit. <clears throat> but when I started to try and think of, okay, I need to, cause Sam talks about that a lot. He talks about like, use it in your life and, mm -hmm. um, you know, use what you're learning in your practice to create a new lens, to look at your life through and to, to permeate mindfulness through your life. And I think that's, extremely potent um in in your circles of people that you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis or with your family are you seeing more awareness like since you started this journey of embarking on understanding the mind are you seeing changes culturally in how um how mindfulness or meditation is is digging deeper or, or being more adopted more broadly in the culture or are you seeing the opposite trend where people are getting further away from that state it's a mix. I think some people, as, as far as the people that I know and they practice mindfulness as well, I think that they do understand it and they are getting it more and they're, it's, it's kind of, it's a constant journey, right? Sometimes it's better. Sometimes it's worse. Sometimes it's easier. And then sometimes it's more difficult. And when those people are working through it, I think as long as there is the effort there, right? Like you're, they, they benefit because they're trying to focus on their effort, not any type of reward that they receive. And to give like a counterpart to that, what I do see, which makes me, which I think is not talked about enough, what makes me maybe like nervous or concerned for the mindfulness com community is this idea of uh, mindful materialism, where it's kind of like, you know, we're trying to get rid of the illusory self. We're trying to live from a place of, awareness that has curiosity and is non-judgmental. And even though it might not always be perfect, you'll start to see it where people will then grasp to an, identi an identity of, I am a mindful person. I have to dress this way. I have to look this way. I have to wear these things. I have to have these things and I need to be in these groups and I need to exclude everything else. And I think that kind of takes away the point of being a mindful person that, you know, is bettering yourself to then hopefully better the world because you're then identifying and saying, no, I have to have these things. And that's what I see sometimes happening with people that do practice mindfulness. And then for people that are, don't practice mindfulness or maybe a little bit curious behind it, I think the main roadblock there is essentially like things, things like social media or, or not knowing what they value and constantly doing things like I have to go on Instagram, I have to post a photo of myself, I have to, you know, scroll through and just mindlessly look at what other people are doing, regardless of what social media app that it is. Mm -hmm. And so in those different types of cultural instances, I do think it's being accepted more and practiced more. That might just be me, you know, in my, uh, in my own silo of trying to meet more mindfulness people. Right. But um, I do think that more people are curious behind it just because in the broad sense, people are liking that it's a stress reduction thing. And I think that that's a hot topic right now, like reduce your stress, get better sleep. 
And so people are like, well, mindfulness does that. And even though that might not be the, the initial point of mindfulness, if it gets people in the door and it can lead them towards broadening their practice and really diving in and learning what it can really mean to be mindful, then I think that's great. But I would also say there's that caveat there of, hey, it's great to do this. It will help with stress reduction, but just make sure you're not then clinging to this next thing of, okay, well, I'm a, you know, I think they call it like navel gazing where they're like, oh, I'm someone that's super mindful. Ha ha ha. Everything's, you know, perfect in the world. And it's like, well, that's not, that's not really the point of mindfulness, but I think that that's where you see the mix up of like some people adopting it, other people not uh, as much so. Yeah. The, I see it too, the, the signaling uh, where people almost are more interested in signaling that they are a mindful person that meditates more so than mm -hmm. actually being interested in doing the work. And for me, initially, the signaling was actually a really big turnoff, right? Before I even embarked on meditation, everyone that I came across that had mentioned or talked about meditation um, was a very was not the type of person I identified with being, right? It was a yogi that was all, that was very proud that they were a vegan and they meditated and they almost spoke with a cadence that seemed fake. Uh, it was almost like they were trying to embody the social media profile of showing people yes. what they thought um, they, they should be instead of who they actually were. And it felt very disingenuous. So I think I, th I definitely can see some of that. And you know, I feel that in even in my my family, more people are aware of meditation and mindfulness. In term, it, it, strictly speaking, of like the terms, they know what those terms are because they've seen them or yes. come across them. But I feel like I, I'm not coming across very many people who actually have a consistent practice or actually feel compelled to engage with the process deeply, right? Like maybe superficially they say, Oh yeah, sometimes I'll meditate when I have time. Most of the time, those people actually never meditate when I actually ask them like, when do you do it? Where do you do it? And they're, they like struggle to answer. So that, you know, I think it really, the whole, this world of distraction we live in, I think really concerns me because I felt it firsthand. Like I felt how difficult it was for me to concentrate just concentrate, not even from the aspect of meditation or the understanding of awareness and, and how to process thoughts, but just to concentrate for a certain period of time was a huge obstacle for me. And, and what worries me is we have this machine of distraction that is essentially incentivized by billions of dollars. And so literally almost every human is training consistently every single day their, their ability to be distracted. And so our ability to pay attention to one single thing for longer than like a minute has just dwindled to the point where it's almost non-existent. And that, that concerns me because when you're, when you're allowed to constantly avoid paying attention to important things, and like you said, whether people even know what's important or not is a whole other story, but mm -hmm. you know, things like anxiety, negative emotions, um, negative things happening in your life. If all you do is distract yourself away because it feels shitty to sit with those things. And it does like it requires work and it, it's really easy to just scroll through Instagram or watch Netflix or go and eat something that's loaded with sugar. Cause it makes you feel really good temporarily. I think that that draw, um, really preys and captures our like primitive wiring in a way that is going to create a lot of resistance for people to engaging with a mental practice. And I think it's no surprise that if that's the society we live in, it's no surprise we have an epidemic of anxiety and, and depression problems, uh, especially when you consider so much of the medical community simply gives them, you know, a deeper tool for distraction, like a drug to numb them or distract them even more from ever having to face that. And, you know, what is like, how do you see, 
what are the solutions to that? Because I, I really, it's really, it's a really big obstacle to fight against. And, you know, do you, are you optimistic at us being able to combat that sort of epidemic of distraction? And if so, what do you think are the avenues for that? I, uh, I am optimistic. I feel like, I feel like for those of us that really care, we almost like have to be. And yeah. I definitely agree with how it's essentially like a, a slot machine is in your pocket, right? Especially with how it works with the way that it yeah. notifies you and causes that like hit of dopamine. And you're like, Oh my God, it feels so good to just want to look at who's, who's buzzing my phone. But the way that I found it to be successful for people to be able to curb this distraction tool that they encounter daily is one to be aware. And, and we talk a lot about this in the foot nerd program about like, Hey, you need to be aware. Then you can use the tools that you have to then make a change. We have to be aware that as human beings, as animals, we are easily persuaded. And like, that's essentially what our phones do, right? They cue you to consistently go back to them to become distracted. We rely, we're, we're social beings. So we rely on social approval. A lot of social media is essentially your brain views it as, am I being accepted by the community or not? Especially like if you post something and you're like, well, how many likes did I get? How many people commented? How many people looked at it? That's your brain. Like, am I being socially accepted? So first we need to be aware of that. Then my favorite tool by far to help people with this is the idea of rain, which I forget the, I'm blanking on the name right now for the mindfulness practitioner who coined it, but it's very popular by, Jack Hornfield and Tara Brock, but, and the idea is, and the acronym breakdown breaks down into rain is to recognize a is to accept. And then I is to investigate. And then N is to, it has a couple different settings, but it's to note or nurture. And I learned the note part from a great guy named Judson Brewer, who um, wrote a really good book called the craving mind. And he talks a lot about, about this. And so the reason why rain helps so well, is because when we get into how our brain works, we have like three parts. We have our logical reasoning part in our rational brain. That's like our neocortex. We have our emotional brain. That's our limbic brain, sometimes called like the caveman brain. And then we have our reptilian brain. And when we experience a stressor or a craving, we're, our limbic brain is firing, our emotional brain. And that can quickly and easily overpower our ability to be logical. The way that I like to describe this is, when you have an urge to check your phone or to eat food and you just like can't stop yourself and you don't even realize it. And then after the fact, you get upset with yourself like, Oh, why did I eat that? Or I'm trying to be mindful. Why did I look at my phone? Well, that's your, your prefrontal cortex, your logical reasoning part of your brain coming back online. And then you're all of a sudden now feeling judgmental and stressed out because your emotional brain has been, it has been satisfied essentially by what it was able to do. Mm -hmm. So you can use rain to stop that process from happening. And this is, I, I work a lot with habits and I think that blends in really deeply with this mind uh, or with this type of practice of, of mindfulness because you have been conditioned through this thing that, you know, we're calling a slot machine, our phone, you've been conditioned to view, viewing that or, you know, someone might say like emotional eating in those two cases, you're viewing that as a higher reward system. And using RAIN allows us to update that reward hierarchy in the brain through essentially working with operant conditioning, which is that reward-based learning. So when you use RAIN, you recognize, if I'm using my phone, for example, let's say it buzzes and I have the urge to check it, I am recognizing the urge and I'm paying attention to what it feels like. I'm fully accepting 
the urge and whatever sensations it is. And then huge part would be leading with curiosity. So that way we're non-judgmental. I'm leading with curiosity. What does it feel like? Is it a restlessness? Are there thoughts coming and going? What does it feel like? What types of thoughts are they? Is it remembering, planning? Is it um, imagining? And then as I continue to investigate, what that essentially is doing is it's providing a good feeling because curiosity is like an open and joyful feeling. It's providing that for the limbic brain, that emotional brain, so that satisfies it and frees it up. So that way your logical brain can then come back online and can help you make more informed decisions and update that, that habit hierarchy. And so then you do note and nurture, which is noting in the sense of, hey, this was the context it was in. I am maybe more distracted with my phone when I'm out with others or when I'm alone or when I'm doing this certain context or if I have a work thing going on and I'm super stressed, then it's much easier for me to be distracted by it. And then the nurture part is the idea of you were with the emotion, not in the emotion. So going back to that river analogy, you were with the experience and not lost in it. And over time, what you start to realize is it becomes easier and easier to be aware of the craving. And it's kind of like a wave. It comes and there's a peak and, you, and it definitely feels intense, but then it also passes and goes away. And that I think, in my opinion, is extremely powerful because it's not willpower, which relies on, which, I mean, people only have so much of, but that relies specifically on the logical part of the brain. It's not a habit swap, which doesn't really solve the problem of just like, you know what, I'm just going to turn off all the things on my phone. I'm going to turn on silent. I'm going to turn on no notifications. Um, and it also doesn't rely on necessarily controlling your environment, which you're not always in control of. So this is the one that works with both, both parts of the brain to really help you change your habits. And in this case, really be mindful of your day-to-day -day experience. And even though I used this example with like a phone, this can be applied to any habit or any experience that someone's having because it's just asking you to lead with curiosity and pay attention to the current moment. Yes. What a power that is. I think it's Michelle McDonald that came up with rain. Um, yeah. Cause I actually, I think I read that in, in uh, the little book of being yesterday. Um, <laughs> but yeah, what a, like what a powerful tool. And it's, it's like any new tool. Um, number one, you have to be aware of the tool. So like you said, mm -hmm. awareness is really the beginning of, okay, you have to be aware of the tool. You have to be aware of when the tool can be used. Um, and you also have to be aware of the benefits that can be garnered from implementing that tool. And so that, that kind of like tripod of awareness is the forms a prerequisite of what's needed to even engage with that process. And, you know, like any tool, the more you use it, the more um, fluent you become in using it effectively. And I think you almost create, you can almost create um, a new habit, a new trigger um, for a habit where when I feel compelled or when I feel, um, you know, like magnetized to something, whether that's food that you know you shouldn't be eating or social media. Um, it's like that space, that understanding to create a habit of just sitting with it before you engage or get essentially sucked into it um, is so powerful. And when you, it's hard to create that habit initially because it's easy to fall into the old habits. That's why they exist, right? To reduce your mm -hmm. decision-making and just allow you to be on autopilot so that your brain can be free for other things. But when it becomes counterintuitive, you have to really put in the work to being mindful of when those things are happening and to create that little, you know, split second pause between when you get sucked into it and actually spending time going through sort of that framework, that template of rain and yeah, very, very powerful. And I think very needed today. So the awareness, you know, I think we have a big opportunity 
you know, I'm a big believer that every, the bigger the problem is, the bigger the opportunity is. And I think if we can make it simple and approach it from the standpoint of sharing our experience through sort of love, compassion, understanding, not being judgmental, mm -hmm. if people can feel like they're being listened to and can feel safe with sharing that, you know, you and me are not immune or I don't want to speak for you actually, but myself, I'm not immune to still getting roped into those things. But every time you detect yourself in that, you become better at acknowledging and detecting it in future. And I think it's not about never getting sucked in. It's about acknowledging when you are getting sucked in and being better at troubleshooting, um, not going as deep, right? Maybe it's not never engaging with eating, you know, shitty food or, or digging into the explore feed, but it's maybe not, getting sucked in for as long um, and also being better at identifying those moments. So yeah, I think that's, that is the antidote to the distraction epidemic is just understanding sort of our own psychology um, and knowing mm -hmm. where we're vulnerable. And it sucks that, you know, you wish that there were companies out there that were mindful of not sort of preying on our vulnerabilities, but this is just the <laughs> world we live in. So we all have to have a sense of personal responsibility and, to inquire a little bit, but also, you know, the, if you're further along in your journey, um, I think there's this, you know, with everyone in the foot nerd community, there's a deep desire to share your journey to help others who are maybe just starting their journey. Um, and I think that that Passover of wisdom and helping others um, in a way that you're not telling them what to do, you're just sort of giving them some insight as to what you did that you find is working or that you're currently working on. Uh, I think is very is a very powerful way of helping other people and aligns with both sort of our social wiring as humans and also our desire to be selfless, right? Like when we lived in tribes, if you did something nice for another person, that person ended up doing something nice for you at a time that you potentially needed it very, very much. And so we're wired to be selfless, but we've sort of gotten sucked in culturally through everything that we see in media and news and social media to start to take a very... Um, individualistic standpoint where it's all about me uh, you know everyone is out there everyone has to look out for themselves otherwise you get screwed and I think that that mindset is just a really toxic one um, in, in terms of just permeating through society and that everyone just takes that shitty mindset so yeah yeah brain, it's like brain the, is uh, super powerful it's it's like the distraction uh, just continually breeds distrust between others but also between yourself like how am I supposed to trust someone else if I am consciously and consistently anxious and nervous. Well, it's like, well, if I feel that way about myself all the time, well, then I'm going to consistently feel that way about someone else as well. Like, Hey, I don't know you. What are your intentions? What right. do you want to do? What's going on? And it just creates this space of people thriving on outrage and then never really working to improve their self and then locally improve their community. Right. And it's all like, I really think you see the world how you choose to view it. So if you, mm -hmm. if you think people are all out for themselves and you have to be on constant defense, well, you're going to find things that confirm that perspective. It's really easy to find those things and ignore the things that counter that perspective and vice versa. If you look at the world as a place that's innately nice and kind and people are out there to help others, you're going to see a lot more of that if that's what you choose to, to look for. And I think all the beauty is all it takes is one really memorable kind person to take that person who has a negative perspective and and really make them question whether that perspective is valid and should be applied to everyone um and so i think every person out there doing something kind and selfless for another person is being the change of switching over that cultural kind of lens 
um, from looking at the world as a place that's innately dangerous and that you have to watch out for yourself um, to one that is um, safe and that you should, that you can actually feel really good and be rewarded for doing things for others. So um, yeah, it's, it's so, oh, this world is so filled with distractions. It's really, it's really <laughs> quite, quite stunning. Um, yeah. It's like everywhere you go, you know, everything's meant to grab your attention. Cause that's, that's, what's the most val- most valuable, right? Your, your attention. It is. Our attention is worth trillions of dollars, the attention economy. And when you treat attention as a commodity, um, that is a finite resource, right? Like it, you can't just mm-hmm. go out and make new humans overnight. It takes nine months for them even to be independent. If you're strip mining a finite resource and trying to fight for access, um, Tristan Harris has a really good way of putting it. He says it basically becomes a battle, um, a fight to get lower on the brainstem. And, uh, and you know, so companies and, and even social media will incentivize limbic hijacking to really dig deep into that primitive brain in order to fight to capture our attention because it's profitable. And so, you know, I think you are, I'm seeing, and maybe it's just because I'm looking for that information specifically, a sort of renaissance in, in within companies, like not regulators, but within companies of employees saying, I think we're messing people up, right? Like it's no surprise. It's, it's kind of shocking that the people who started some of the biggest social media networks don't even let their kids use those very networks. And I mean, that's yeah. sort of like a, that's an indicator that, okay, even they know something, something, you know, the, the water's, the well's been poisoned a little bit. So we need to kind of tune into that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's like, if you can control a person's emotions and how they're going to respond, like you, especially if they're not aware of it, you're going to control everything they do. Right. We're highly trainable creatures, unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> Let's talk about mental training because mental training, um, I think it's, it almost seems like, you know, throughout my schooling, whether that's high school or undergrad or even my master's degree in physio, mental training was never talked about. Like that wasn't even a term that was on my radar. It was nothing I was interested in because I didn't have any awareness of it. And, you know, it almost seems Sam Harris talks about how it's one of the biggest cultural blind spots. And, um, you know, knowing what I know now, it's almost it seems so weird, right? We, we embrace physical training as this thing that if you don't do your body gets weak, stiff and painful. Um, you know, if none of us moved or spent time improving our physical health, we would all be in really in a really bad spot. And yet no, no sort of mention or or common cultural mention is, is made of, um, mental training of, you know, if you're not spending time refining and working on improving your mental health, um, it ends up dwindling away and, and becoming a problem and, and it shouldn't be surprising, but it seems like people just don't think that mental training is a thing. Um, and yeah, like when someone says mental training, what does that, how do you think of, of that in terms of defining that? The way I view mental training is any, any type of exercise or practice that you're going to do that helps you cultivate a, better mental aspect that you have. So whether that's, you know, I'm working on having more positive self-talk or in another sense, it's anything that helps you build better concentration skills, better awareness of your moment to moment experience. And then ultimately what helps you be more well-rounded when it comes to paying attention to what you want to pay attention to understanding distractions, and then learning how you can shape your view of the world based on the different psychological techniques that you choose to work on yourself. Cool. That's a great definition. Very, um, 
yeah, that sort of encompasses a lot of, a lot of elements from that. And I think mm-hmm. when people say mental training, most people will go straight to uh, meditation as, as like the tool, right? Cause it's the most yep. popularized. Um, but you mentioned psychological techniques. Can you give, you know, we, the Stoics were great at having some psychological techniques that help them almost reframe their lived experience so that you can have the exact same thing happen to you. You can have the exact same thing happen to two people and they can mm-hmm. both interpret it in vastly different ways and have, uh, you know, vastly different experiences in terms of one person can look at it in a way that, um, almost creates like a sense of challenge for them. And one person can look at it in a way that induces massive amounts of suffering. So maybe talk about a couple of those psychological techniques and the ones that maybe you find yourself implementing uh, frequently and get benefit from. Right. So the stoic psychological techniques, there's uh, many different ones that they have and they are fantastic. And I would kind of like preface by saying, I think that they're so important separate from mindfulness because everything we experience is kind of like filtered and shaped through our mind. And we're not always going to be aware or always going to be mindful, like we mentioned earlier. So stoic psychological techniques help reframe. And that would be one of the main techniques they use. They reframe the way that you experience and think about different challenges or hardships that you're going to face in your life. So it all kind of comes down to, one of the main ones they use is the idea of negative visualizations. So this plays on a thing that we talked about previously called hedonic adaptation, which is essentially broken down to everyone has a baseline level of happiness, regardless of the the peaks and the valleys, you always kind of come back to this base level. Well, the Stoics would use negative visualization to, it's almost like gratitude on a superpower, right? That's how I like to view it, where you take a moment to think about something in your life and then put a negative spin on it. So it might be something like I am really happy with what I have in my life and my job. And then maybe sometimes we feel a little bit complacent or we feel like underappreciated. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, imagine what it would be like to be homeless and to not have a job. Like picture yourself in that situation. I don't have a job. I am homeless. I have to move place to place. I rely on others for help and I don't always receive it. And all of a sudden what you have seems like luxurious. And another example could be, I am imagining what it would be like to not have access to hot water, to not be able to get a hot shower whenever I want, to not be able to go into a grocery store to get food, or even on a broader scale, it would be like, what if I lived in a nation that was, you know, under some type of, dictatorship or extremist rule and the group that I was in was one of the groups that was being oppressed and then it's like okay well now I come back to my reality of where I currently am it's like man it really is nice to be able to turn on the shower and immediately get a hot you know shower whatever I want or to be able to go to the grocery store down the street to get food or have the ability to you know have a freedom of speech or to even be able to go vote and to have these luxuries that see that we take for granted essentially. And so that's what negative visualization really helps with. It's like the ultimate way to be optimistic, right? Instead of it being like, Oh, I'm happy. My glass is half full. Well, a stoic would do negative visualization and then go, I'm happy. I have a glass at all. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And the other one that I really like with this is, and Sam Harris even touches on this. It's the idea of the last time exercise, meaning there will always be a last time you do something and you don't always know when it is. So there'll be a last time 
you experience a holiday with your family. There will be a last time that you live somewhere with the friends that you have where you are. The same way that there will be a last time that you see a loved one again before they might pass away. And that plays a little bit on their viewing of amor fati, which is a love of fate, wishing for things as they are, not as you want them to be. Mm -hmm. And the way that that plays on is they always view it as everything that you have is on borrowed time. Meaning you could wake up one day and maybe you have spent time really appreciating the love of your friends and family, but at any moment that could all be taken from you. There could be a catastrophic like disaster in the environment. Someone could lose their life driving to work in like a car accident. Um, you could lose your life uh, in, you know, something that happens during the day or someone might all of a sudden come down with a disease and they only have a few months left to live. Like those are things that could happen, even if they might seem unlikely, acknowledging that there is absolutely a possibility that they could happen, acknowledging that everything is limited in its time, including us, really makes you more appreciative and then obstacles seem insignificant. So if I am someone that might usually get annoyed at someone cutting me off on the freeway, well, it's like negative visualization, damn, I'm glad to have a car and not have to walk to work. And then on top of that, it's like, <laughs> yep. right? And then on top of that, it's like, well, I'm really glad I didn't get in an accident or it, it just makes those things seem so insignificant and it makes it so that it becomes significantly harder to be upset by something. And I think the way that is easy to overcome that would be their idea of the uh, trichotomy of control, or at least that's how William B. Irving talks about it, where it's like you have stuff that is not in your control at all. You have things that are fully in your control and then things that are somewhat in your control. And so you can't control the weather or if the sun's going to rise or necessarily what other people will say or do. You have full control over, uh, you know, things like that you're going to do throughout the day to some degree and the things that you only have some control over. And those are like a mix, the full control uh, and some control would be things like your reputation. You only have some control over you, even your and, health, uh, you have, you don't right? have full, you know, you have full control over your thoughts, your opinions and your values. I think I struggle yeah. to even find anything else that I have full control over. There's certainly things that you have a good amount of control over. I think mm -hmm. people underestimate how much control or impact they have on the health of their body, right? They, people almost look at their health as something they have no control over. Um, yeah. And I think that's almost something that needs to be recategorized where you don't have complete control over this, uh, nor should you feel like you need to be in complete control, but you have a lot of control. You can do a lot of things um, to contribute positively to making sure that your health, that your body has what it needs to heal itself, to be healthy, to function optimally. Um, yeah, I think those techniques like negative visualization, I've just, you know, I, I just my definition of it is just thinking of bad shit that hasn't happened to you, right? Anytime yeah. like something bad happens to me, I just imagine, well, I don't have cancer. I have a family that are all alive and love me and support me. Like there's, you know, there's so, there's so many things that could happen to you that are really shitty that haven't happened to you. And just thinking of those almost as a gentle reminder that what you have in life or the state that you're currently in is actually really good. Um, and you know, when you realize that people who come back from war and have two of their legs essentially blown off by a mine and mm -hmm. are in a wheelchair, um, a lot of those people are insanely happy. And so it's, you know, it, it just gives perspective to the fact that it's really not about the situation. It's about how you view, um, how you view it. And, you know, what I found personally is that this whole, um, 
concept of reframing and negative visualization is hard initially, but it becomes easier with time to the point where it almost becomes your default. Like Mm -hmm. I remember I was trying to work on that quite a bit and just like doing almost like a, it felt like a forced exercise initially, but I think it was a good way to sort of build the groove in my brain of going there instead of dwelling on negative things. And I remember coming back Mm -hmm. from one trip um, and a massive chunk of ice had slid off uh, the roof of my house and smashed my, the roof of my car. And there was like a massive dent in my roof. And I was like instantly, and this was like the, the biggest light bulb I've had with the fact that forcing myself to do this actually gave a result. Instantly I thought, well, it didn't break my window. I can still drive my car and I don't really care. Um, and I was like, wow, the work that I'm doing is actually helping because I didn't, I, I, whereas I would have, you know, I came back, it was freezing cold. Uh, I like, you know, like it was dark, it was pitch black. I could just see the outline of the big dent. And I was just like, wow, my brain instantly went to look at this from a perspective that something worse could have happened and it didn't. And I was, I actually was really happy because I was like, man, if the glass of my car had broken, you know, and it's like minus 30, I would have had to get that fixed right away. And it would have been such a pain. And I was, I was literally doing negative visualization, but I wasn't actually purposely trying to do it. It's just where my brain went. So I think for anyone out there, you know, it is, it does seem weird at the start, but if you just sort of lean into it and know that it gets easier, um, when your default state is to look for the positive and everything that happens and just understand that even the shitty things happen to you for, for, Usually, I almost always find a really good thing that comes of a really shitty thing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's almost like tuning into the good things that come from those shitty things, uh, more so than than what you deem as the shitty thing itself, reinforces the fact that, well, you know, everything has a silver lining if you're looking for it. If you're not looking for it, you're never going to find it. So it's like how you view the world has a significantly greater impact on your suffering and happiness than what is than than just the things that happen to you and that is that is such a powerful mental technique that I wish I would have learned about or way earlier in life I wish I would have learned about that in high school actually because that would have completely changed a lot of um, you know parts of my life that that created way more struggle and suffering than they than they should have so yeah it's interesting yeah. how what you learn in high school is not necessarily what's most practical to be a happy successful human <laughs> right i'm so glad i spent all those years learning things like algebra and, uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah i've used it a whole bunch you know i was lucky Thank God I, had, I know how uh, to long divide oh that's such a useful right? skill i use it in my day-to-day life <laughs> yes all the time uh all right well let's talk about let's finish with um let's talk a little bit about meditation. So I think, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. we talked about how we're going to do probably a monthly podcast called conscious conversations where we just dedicate a full 60 to 90 minutes talking about different um, concepts related to the mind. Because I think, you know, like any of these podcasts, it's really just an opportunity for us to have a conversation, share what we're working on and sort of what we're learning and then allow people to be a fly on the wall if they find it useful to listen to it. So I think we'll do a full podcast on, Um, even just doing a full one on meditation for our first official episode in October might be good Mm -hmm. because I think sharing stories of our meditation journey, um, the big insights that we've learned of what it is, isn't useful techniques to just be able to form a daily habit. There's a lot to dig into there, but just superficially talking about it. I think one thing that I'm always curious to hear people expand on is how do you define, how did you, um, almost distinguish meditation from mindfulness. So how would you define meditation? How would you define mindfulness? 
So I would define meditation as a skill that is used to help deepen someone's mindfulness practice. So it's kind of like the tool that is used because meditation comes in so many different ways. It's, it's the tools that are used to help cultivate a better sense of mindfulness or to deepen that uh, overarching like foundation. And when someone is practicing mindfulness or they're becoming more mindful, it is them. And, and this is not my definition. I forget uh, who said it, but it's paying attention to the present experience on purpose, non-judgmentally. That's when, that, when someone's being mindful, that is what's happening. And you can be aware in a variety of ways that like we talked about with the awareness spectrum. But if you're paying attention to that present moment uh, experience on purpose and it's non-judgmental, then you're practicing mindfulness. Meditation is just a way that you can deepen that practice and have experiences that help you um, get, get more depth on being mindful. That's a pretty, that's a great definition, very all encompassing. And it's almost like meditation is a tool that serves as an outlet to deepening your ability to be mindful. Whereas mm -hmm. mindfulness is really like this overarching big cloud that can surround a lot of different things, not just the act of meditation, but also just like a, um, almost like, once again, a lens that you look at life through and that you try and um, embody throughout, throughout your day, throughout your interactions. So really like that. And then in terms of your personal meditation practice, how do you do it? Where do you do it? When do you do it? What's your, uh, what's your practice like these days? Yeah. So I have a central practice and then I branch off from there. So my central practice, which is, uh, like a traditional Vipassana of I'm breathing, I'm focusing on the breath and that's kind of it. I'll do that each morning for 10 to 20 minutes and I'll always do that after I wake up and, and let my dogs out and then come back in and I'll always do it in my living room or out on my front porch. And so like I sit on a meditation pillow, usually that's how I begin. And then from there, what I'll do is I will broaden into different types of mindfulness practices. So that might be going to a flexible awareness of paying attention to my breath or my thoughts or my bodily sensations, kind of whatever happens or something like a compassion practice or even doing different things like the headless way, right? Like asking questions about the illusory self kind of deal. And so that's what I'll do each morning. But then during the day, I'll always try and implement a, uh, in the Mingyur Rinpoche, he has like an app and he also has an, an online learning. And so what they call it is resting in awareness. So I'll try and rest in awareness for those short times, many times, as often as I can throughout the day. And that's how I try and take it from, here's my central practice in the morning, to me making it a lifestyle where I'm constantly trying to live from that mindful state. Great. And then for central practice, are you eyes open or eyes closed? Uh, it's a mix. If I do headless way stuff where I'm focusing on my visual field and trying to see if I can make it so that it feels less of a subject object and more of just like a fully encompassing scene, I'll do eyes open. Or if I'm focusing on thought, bodily sensation or breath, I'll usually do eyes closed or barely open. Cool. Yeah, I've been experimenting a lot more with eyes open and playing with uh, visual field acuity, which I find like a really uh, big challenge, less so now because I've been trying to work on it for a while, but it was really hard 
like there were, I had no template for that. I didn't even know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I knew what Sam was saying when he first explained it. And then I was like, I have no idea how to do this. I don't know how to tell my brain how to focus on a different <laughs> aspect of the visual field. Then it's like, but then you just sort of experiment and you sort of, it's almost like this uh, carrot that's always in front of you that you're trying to reach for. You're getting closer and closer. And, um, yeah. and it's, yeah, it's a very interesting exercise. And I find, uh, so I'm doing more eyes open stuff now, but I find that if I get, if I start to wander a little bit too much, I find my, uh, my refresh or my anchor is close my eyes and take like five deep breaths. And I find that mm-hmm. it's really cool to experiment with both. Cause I, up until fairly recently, I'd always done eyes closed seated meditation. And I think wandering out into uh, different, you know, experimenting with other types. And I think the cool thing about eyes open is that you really have to be better at filtering out noise, right? Like the things you're looking at, avoiding doing sort of spotlight on one specific thing and then telling yourself a story about that thing. And it's like, Oh, wait a, wait a second. I'm supposed (laughs) to be, you know, like it's a very, it's, it's really mental judo as I call it. And it's really fun. I just, when I took a playful approach to it, I actually enjoy not knowing how to how like not really knowing how to do specific techniques that I kind of understand conceptually but can't implement. Whereas I used to be like, oh God, why can't I do this? Like what where I would struggle with it and I would fight with it. Now I just play with it. And I think playfulness is this almost ephemeral term that I've just sort of tried to apply with my entire life, whether that's solving a problem or having a conversation with a difficult person or my own physical or mental practice. I've realized that if I just take a playful element to it, then I, I literally enjoy the struggle and it's just, it's just fun. And sometimes I'll literally burst out laughing at myself because I'm <laughs> not able to do, do something, but um, yeah, very interesting. And I, I think, I think a big element for me not being able to be consistent initially was the negative emotions I associated with meditation and not knowing how to do it. And once right. you, once I started to feel the positive emotions of seeing myself make progress, mostly from just doing it every day and stringing together a consistent habit. Once I started to feel those positive emotions, uh, that was a big boost to be like, I actually want to meditate every day and there's nothing more important in a certain, you know, I do mine in the morning first thing uh, out of bed after having a glass of water. And like, I, there's nothing I would prioritize over that now because I literally enjoy doing it. And it's a very, you know, if someone would have told me that to like when I was first starting, I'd be like, yeah, bullshit. You know, I been like, this is another person signaling, but now it's like, yeah, it's legit. And you just have to, you have to stick with it and you have to have a deeper purpose for doing it. Um, mm-hmm. rather than just being, Oh, I'm doing this because it's good for me. You have to have, I think a deeper purpose and engagement for it to be something you actually want to work on. Um, so yeah, well, I, I'm excited to really dig deeper into the different types of meditation, expand on them hear about your sort of process and on-ramp into meditation and all the struggles because mine has definitely been an interesting journey of a lot of struggles initially. So uh, we can kind of share that on our first episode of Conscious Conversations. Um, So I think the last thing I'd like to talk about is just, you know, exploring inner space and putting in the time and energy and effort to really dig into finding out how you think why you think that way? Is it the best way of, of, of thinking? How you're viewing the world? How do you, if someone just doesn't prioritize putting that work in, because it is work, like you have to pay attention for long enough to put in the work and struggle with things. How do you sell that to someone 
you know, because I know the value it gives me, but I often struggle to articulate the value I'm getting without being someone that's coming from a space of just telling people how much I meditate or how good it is for me. Because if they have no template or if they have tried meditation and have really not enjoyed it, they often feel, well, meditation's not for me. I'm just not the kind of person who needs to, to meditate. And to me, that's like someone saying, I'm not the kind of person who needs to sleep. Like it's just so, <laughs> it's, it's just so essential. It, it has been in my life and everyone that I've spoken to that, that, that does it. How do you start the conversation with someone about developing a, a, a mindfulness or meditation practice? And what are some initial tips you can give them to sort of get started with baby steps? So I guess kind of starting with the, uh, to quickly go through just a few tips that someone could do to get started would be, well, one, have like a community of people that makes it easy. So if you're doing it with someone else, uh, and using something like the waking up app, that'll make it easier. And then it's just kind of pick the same place, do it at the same time, start really short. If it's only 30 seconds, it's only 30 seconds. Always feel like you could have done more. If you just start with that, it'll help you really cultivate it to where you want to do more and more and you want to continually expand. Uh, and it's kind of like the perfect way to, in order to do more, you have to do less first. So those are the tips that I would say they were really going to help someone start off. And, and what would you do as, in that 30 seconds? Sorry to interrupt, but what would you recommend? Oh, if someone's like, okay, I'll start with 30 seconds. That's doable. What do I do? <laughs> so what I would have the person do is sit comfortably and close the eyes and then just start to focus on your breathing. And even though that sounds something like is what usually people are cued to do, I just want the person to pay attention. What does it feel like to be breathing? What does it feel like to be sitting? What does it feel like to have your eyes closed. Just be curious and pay more attention to what it feels like to be experiencing certain things. Because I think a lot of times we're like, oh, well, I'm just breathing. What do you mean? And it's like, well, no, what does it feel like to be experiencing breathing? Like, where do you feel it? What does it feel like? And then the more curiosity you lead with about those different bodily sensations, the you'll get that first glimpse of, oh, okay, this is, I've never felt this before. This feels different than I thought it felt. And that can kind of then cultivate more curiosity for the person to continue their practice. Hmm. Love that. Yeah. And the, the starting small thing resonates with me big time. I, I kind of went through a period of a month where I just dug into behavior design as hardcore as I could. And mm -hmm. one thing they always talk about is just start small, right? Start with tiny habits. It's all, it's everything that BJ Fogg's about. And I think that that really is a, a powerful way to sort of, um, be able to not be intimidated by building something from scratch, by mm -hmm. building a habit or building a, um, you know, a practice when it comes to meditation. And even something I've started to recommend is uh, breath counts. So getting people to pick a word uh, like breath or, or whatever, even like I've had someone that chose happy and they they would say one breath, two breath, and they would do like a, mm -hmm. a breathing cadence for 30 seconds. Cause that almost, that almost forced them to pay attention in a way that they could, they didn't even know how to pay attention to the sensations of breathing, but they knew how to count and being able to count and stay on a consistent count almost um, sort of allowed them to put a bigger attentional density on the single thing that they were paying attention to, even if they couldn't pay attention to like the actual feeling of breathing. So yeah, starting small is a big one. Yeah. And I, and if anyone continues to practice, like, Rain is also a great way to go. Whenever I work with someone initially to start cultivating things like their mindset or a mindfulness practice, I, I almost always begin with rain before I even have them do 
a seated situation thing because then they can pay attention to their day-to-day experience and where someone might go, it's not going to benefit me to sit down and take a couple of seconds to breathe. Someone's definitely going to say, when I pay attention to how I interact with others at work or during my day-to-day, that definitely has an immediate effect. So it's like an immediate reward to doing some type of mindfulness practice. Um, and so that's why rain can be beneficial, cool. especially since some people, you know, have that issue when they practice mindfulness. And I would def- definitely give like a, a short little like, hey, just be aware, like if, if you're someone that has experienced some type of trauma, going into a deep insight might not be the initially best thing to do. And so if you've had issues with mindfulness in the past because of that, or you felt overly stressed afterwards, then it would be beneficial to seek out an individual that is experienced in dealing with some type of trauma-informed mindfulness. And then when it comes to why is it important to develop an insight practice, it allows you to see all the different ways that you experience things, but it also lets you know what affects you and how different things impact you. Like I had never known so many different things about myself or how I was responding or, or how my impressions were being thrown on to others. And I assumed that it was them until I started practicing a mindfulness practice. And I had no idea that you could feel love and compassion for people that, you know, either I've wronged in the past, they've wronged me or even people that I don't know. And it can take time to build those things, but it was a experience that I never thought was possible until I started doing a mindfulness practice. And the way that I'll usually kind of lead people into it is just like in Diana Winston's book, I'll ask them to think about a time that they were out in nature. Or I also think that people experience this at like musical festivals or concerts where you're fully immersed in the scene. There's no really you in the middle of it. It's not you separate from everything else. It's just fully encompassed. Like you are the current experience. And I think most of the people that I talk to have had at least one experience in their life like that. And I'm like, that's what mindfulness can build and be like for you daily if you cultivate a practice. And that usually motivates people to at least try it out. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great way to kind of frame that and help them get some sort of template for how to make sense of the feeling of what it should, uh, of what they're aiming for. Um, And I think another thing that I found helpful when talking to people is to schedule their, their time for Mm self-discovery or introspection, right? Like pick, pick a time of day that you have a lot of control over that you have a low likelihood of being distracted. Oftentimes the morning, first thing in the morning, waking up 10 minutes earlier than usual is a great time and put that in your calendar because a lot of people put things on to-do lists and to-do lists essentially quantify the output, but the calendar quantifies the input. It, it actually like guides you in terms of making sure that that gets prioritized, right? There's a prompt there for you to know that this is the time that I need to do X habit. Um, and I think, yeah, starting the combination of starting small and scheduling it um, at a time you have full control over is a really... Um, I know for me, it was a really powerful on-ramp to creating a sustainable habit instead of just doing, you know, instead of being a crisis meditator or just trying to do meditation when I get around to it, it was like, I now have a daily habit of doing this because I have specific time carved out for it. And I'm doing it in such a way that there's no pressure for me to do long periods of time or have this specific mindset when I'm doing it. It's, I'm just going to take what comes and uh, try and apply different uh, experiment with different ways of spending that time to to allow myself to enjoy it more because at the end of the day it has to be enjoyable for you to want to gravitate towards doing it on a on a frequent basis um, 
Cool. Yeah. And, and it, uh, I guess the final thing I'd say to that would be it, it creates a sense of joyful vigor for just being and doing whatever it is that you're doing, which is such a weird feeling, but when you can find it and, and it can be cultivated through mindfulness practice, it's just like, no matter what you're doing in your day, you're just enjoy doing it because you have this joy of just being at a base level aware of what's going on. Yeah. And it's so funny how you say it's rare and weird because that really should be our default state. And we just got yeah. so, we just gotten teased so far away from that, that all, things that are innately natural and, and like on a deep level, very human um, seem almost weird and strange now. And it's like, <laughs> how the hell did we get here? Uh, it's strange. A couple questions I'd like to finish with on Nerd Talk episodes. Um, the first mm-hmm. one is, what are some of your keystone habits? So obviously we've talked a lot about mindfulness and meditation, but you know, any crucial daily habits that you have that you almost feel have a multiplier effect on the quality of your life or the quality of your day? Yes. The two by far biggest things that help me out, or I guess three I'll say would be one cooking my meals and and putting time aside to cook food. I think that's extremely important. And it's something that I do daily. Cool. I do uh, movement snacks, which we share on uh, Instagram, which is just short little bits of movement to keep you moving consistent, consistently throughout the day. Same type of thing applies, right? Short times, many times, doesn't have to be long. Yep. And then the third thing that I do is uh, breathing exercises, specifically uh, Buteco breathing exercises, which the main one is breathe light to breathe right. So three times throughout the day, I'll spend 10 minutes reducing my breathing volume and uh, taping my mouth when I go to sleep. And it's made the biggest difference and how I feel energy-wise throughout the day. Amazing. Yeah, those are great keystone habits. And are there any habits right now that you're trying to either install or uninstall um, that, you're, that are sort of challenging you? Yeah, the uninstall would be as I create more content for either things like the Mind Pillar or through my uh, company that I do stuff with where I help people with lifestyle, I can sometimes get distracted going through and creating different content for social media. So it's kind of that, that barrier of how do I create a healthy relationship with my usage of social media because I have to interact with it so much through either like answering questions that I get on Instagram or having to post certain things at certain times. And so that's been the main thing that I've been working through as of lately, just because I've spent more time creating uh, content for like online platforms. Cool. Love it. Thank you so much, Mitch. It's been a great conversation. If people want to find you, if they want to connect with you uh, for lifestyle coaching, uh, what are the best coordinates for them to find you in terms of website or social media and all that good stuff? Yeah. So they can find me on Instagram. My handle is sweet period underscore period Mitch. And then my uh, website where they can find more information is the sweetlife.academy. Cool. And where did, out of curiosity, where did the Sweet Life moniker come from? Where did Sweet Mitch come from? Yeah. So I, when I first moved down here and then I joined on at a CrossFit gym to coach there, one of the uh, great gyms locally in Tampa called Cigar City CrossFit, the owner, Ben, had thought that I was just extremely polite and very nice to people. So that he started (laughs) calling me Sweet Mitch and then it just kind of stuck from there. Nice. Yeah. It's funny how <laughs> it's funny how little things can stick for so long. It does have a good ring to it. And I like your uh, sweet and sour podcast. I think that's a, that's a great name for it as well. Um, 
Cool, man. Well, thanks for sharing some of your time with us today, Mitch. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think there was a lot of good little gems that people can take away from. Uh, like I said, Mitch and I are going to be doing a monthly-ish uh, podcast called Conscious Conversations, which is going to be all about the mind, sharing sort of the information that we're putting into the mind pillar for the Footner program. Um, I've been getting actually some great feedback on the new mind project that we have with the 30 days straight of five minutes of meditation. I think there's actually some of the new classes are sort of working together in groups to help each other, you know, share struggles. And that's really what the program's all about, right? It's just learn together, struggle together, um, disagree sometimes, but also just use the community as this sort of backbone to support you on your journey. And that's kind of what Beam Tribe is about as well. Um, so yeah, look out for those uh, podcasts coming up. The first one's probably going to be all about meditation, diving deeper into different techniques, strategies, sharing our stories. And, um, yeah, it'll all be about mental and emotional health. I'm stoked for those future upcoming episodes. I hope you listen or you enjoyed uh, this episode to all the listeners out there and we'll catch you next week on uh, the TFC audio project.